As I go to churches around the world, I know that they are known for many things. Although churches are to do the work of discipleship and evangelism, there are certain things that some churches do better than others. And generally, Korean churches are known for their great prayer meetings and their great prayer ministry. African-American churches in America are known for their focus on social justice. Churches like Hillsong in Australia or the Brooklyn Tabernacle Church in New York is known for their music, different styles of it. Saddleback Church in California, started by Rick Warren, is known to attract people on the fringe of faith. You may not know this church, pastored by Craig Rochelle in Oklahoma, Life Church, but you certainly know the app that they produce, which is the YouVersion app, uh, your Bible app, which most people use. That comes from a church in Oklahoma. North Point Church in Atlanta, pastored by Andy Stanley, is known for their cutting-edge community outreach and uh, the initiatives that they do to impact their communities. This is no different from the early days of the founding of the church. Early churches, such as the church in Antioch, was known for their efforts uh, as a mission-minded church. And of course, the seven churches in the book of the Revelation uh, had different qualities to them. As I look at our own GCCP church, I wonder what our church is known for. And so I ask some people what is one thing in their mind that GCCP is known for. And a vast majority in their reply was united in telling me that our church is known for strong Bible teaching. It's a wonderful thing to be known for. But it got me to thinking, without the teaching from the pulpit, I wonder, would each of you in our church community self-initiate to want to read for yourself and understand the Bible for yourself? With such solid Bible teaching and the heritage of it in our church, I wonder if I gave you a, a test of 100 questions of basic Bible truths, would all of you pass? I wonder at times with such a strong pulpit ministry, if it has made our own people too lazy to read the Bible for themselves. Because one may wonder, I simply come to a weekend service. There I am fed the Word of God. There it is taught well, and I don't need to read the Bible for myself the rest of the week. I hope these are unfounded fears on my behalf. But sadly, I am afraid that some aspects of what I'm thinking may be true. I'm afraid that if we took a survey of our congregation of those who read the Bible with regularity, even once a day, we would find the results disappointing. And that's why I don't ask you to raise your hands. Now, don't get me wrong. I know for certain that we as a church this past decade has leveled up in our spiritual maturity. I see that in the questions that are being asked of me. I see that in the spiritual discussions that are being had in our community. I get questions often about which websites uh, they should look at to get answers for questions that they may have as they're studying the scriptures. I'm asked which commentary people should buy as they do their own personal devotion. But sadly, I wonder if the majority of our congregants 
are not reading the Word of God with any regularity. You need to remember that weekend messages are not a substitute for your practicing the spiritual discipline of Bible reading. And so I want to talk about this spiritual discipline as we continue our sermon series entitled, Not First, Practicing Daily Spiritual Disciplines to Remind Me of My Place in This World. And you may wonder, what does Bible reading have anything to do with reminding me daily that I'm not number one? That's what we want to unpack this morning. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, would you turn with me to the book of 2 Timothy chapter 2. We're going to take a look at verses 14 to 26. And I want to propose to you this morning five reasons, five hopefully compelling reasons for why you need to read and know well the Bible. I know that you have known, if you've grown up in this church ever since you were young, that you need to read the Bible and pray every day. But I wonder if you actually do it. And so I want to present these hopefully compelling reasons from the Bible itself for why we need to read and know well the Bible. And as you're turning to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 14 to 26, by a way of background, I want you to remember that the books of First and 2 Timothy were personal letters written by the Apostle Paul to his protege, Timothy, a young pastor. And here in these two books... Paul will give Timothy some instructions, some reminders, some admonitions for the many aspects that come with pastoring a church. And here in verse 14, he reminds Timothy of one thing. Look with me. Remind them of these things, charging them before the Lord not to strive about words to no profit, to the ruin of the hearers. Apparently, there were those in Timothy's church who were teaching the Bible wrong. They were taking things out of context. They were propagating a false doctrine, perhaps deliberately doing so for their own purpose and gain, making the Scriptures fit their own agendas. And so here's an admonition from the Apostle Paul to young Timothy to remind the church that they were not to debate and quarrel over things which were worthless, which were not in the Scriptures, do not give credibility to what these people are proposing because they are not in the Scriptures. Because apparently, people were listening to them and they were confused and disturbed. Instead, Paul was saying, you need to talk about things and discuss things which the Bible clearly teaches instead of arguing about useless things. You see, what Paul was advocating for in verse 14 and onwards is that everything needs to be filtered through the lenses of Scripture. And with that, the importance of handling God's Word correctly as a matter of spiritual discipline. You see, the mere act of reading the Bible is important, but it's not enough. One must read the Bible with a desire towards understanding and comprehension. And with that understanding and comprehension of you towards application, towards life change. You see, when we talk about reading the Word of God, students know that there are two types of reading. There is the first type of reading where simply your eyes glaze over the words. And when you are asked, did you read it? You say, yes, I read it. And there is another type of reading, which is reading with an eye towards comprehension and understanding. And it is this type of reading the scriptures 
that Paul is going to admonish Timothy to tell his church. Sadly, many believers don't read with the second type of reading. They're simply reading, eyes glossing over words, and somehow justifying in their minds, I have read the Word of God. Let me give you an example. It happened just a few minutes ago. How many of you, if I were to give you a quiz on what you read at the scripture reading, would be able to answer where those verses came from or what was being talked about? For sure, you should have passed the quiz because you read with such confidence. You read in unison. But I wonder how many of us actually really read with comprehension what was being flashed up on the screen. Audible words came out of your mouth, but I think the vast majority may have forgotten the very theme of what the scripture reading was all about, which is about reading the scriptures. That goes to show that we as believers go through the motions of reading scripture, sometimes intentionally, sometimes unintentionally. And sadly, many Christians can claim to read through the Bible in a year. And they pat themselves on the back as if that's an accomplishment. And you ask them, what did you learn? How was your life changed this year as you read through the Scriptures? Their life has not changed. They don't know what they were reading. They were just happy with the notion they read through the Bible in a year. You see, when you read without comprehension or understanding, it's a useless endeavor. So why this discipline? Look what Paul writes in verse 15. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Here Paul reminds young Timothy to remind his church that they are to desire to present themselves approved to God, meaning being one who God is okay with in how they are living. How do we get God's approval? If God were to pick out the men and women in this congregation, in this service, who he approves of, would he stop with you? You know, there are many ways to gain God's approval, but one sure way, according to verse 15, is to be able to handle the word of God, rightly dividing the word of truth. That means you should know what the Bible says. That doesn't mean you've got to be an expert in the Bible, but you should at least know the basics. You should desire to grow to know more about it. You should read it with a desire to understand it, not just going through the motion of reading it. You should be able to elaborate on the basic themes of the Old Testament and the New Testament, to know the overarching story arc of what the Bible is about, to know the setting and the context why the book was written. And in the process of knowing how to properly handle the scriptures, you no longer need to be ashamed. Because now you know what you believe and why you believe what you believe, but you know where to find it in the scriptures for why you believe what you believe. So that if men and women ask you, why do you believe that? Your answer will not be because why I learned that in Sunday school. Or the pastor told me to believe this. You can say, well, let me show you in the word of God where it says these things and this is why I believe it. You need to read and know the Bible well to be approved by God. But sadly, many of us don't. 
I remember going to a restaurant that was famous for breakfast sandwiches on this trip. And I was looking at their extensive menu, and everything looked delicious. And I was deciding between, having narrowed down the choices, to ordering either a steak bagel or a sausage bagel. And so I asked the order taker if the steak bagel was any good. And he said, yes, sir, it is delicious. It's popular with many. It's one of our best sellers. Then I asked about the sausage bagel. And he also said, you know, it's, it's very good. It's delicious. It's popular with many. And with two such equally enthusiastic recommendations from the server, I couldn't decide. And no, I didn't order two sandwiches. And so I asked the server, what would you pick? Whatever you decide, that's my order. Should I get the sausage or the steak bagel? He said, sir, I'm sorry, I can't help you choose. I said, why not? He said, because I'm a vegan, I don't eat meat. (laughs) This is what in our generation we call a face palm moment. You're telling me it's good and you've never eaten it. And let's put that in our context of what we're talking about. We are Christians who say we follow the ways of the Lord, but how can we follow the ways of the Lord if we don't know what those ways are? That would also be what in our generation we call a facepalm moment. And then we wonder why the outside world looks at us funny, wondering why we don't even read what we say we ascribe to. Christians who don't read the Bible and make no effort to know it are not approved by God. That's what the Bible says very clearly. And they should be ashamed of themselves. That's what the Bible says also. Claiming to be a follower of Jesus and not actually reading what he says we are to do to follow him. And so if you and I want to be approved by God, we need to handle the scriptures well. And for us to handle the scriptures well, we need to read it with an eye towards comprehension. And if we don't understand something, then we make the effort to find the answer. You know, the frustration of pastors is this. When you are posed with a problem in every field of study that you don't know something, you will seek for an answer, right? If your computer is broken, you'll ask a computer expert. You'll search on someone else's computer how to fix your own computer. If you lost your phone, you'll... Think of ways of how you can track your phone. You know, there are many problems in life where you will try to seek an answer for it. But it's very surprising that when it comes to spiritual things, when it comes to matters of Scripture, that people don't put in the effort to try to find the answers to their questions. They simply throw up their hands and say, well, it's too hard for me to understand. I'll never get it. Oh, they'll say, well, maybe I'll just ask the pastor when I see him. Why is it in every area of matters to which we have a question for, we will seek an answer except that which deals with matters of Scripture and the Bible? The Bible is very clear. God disproves those who mishandle His Word, who do not read His Word, And so that's why, number one, if you're taking notes, I want you to understand, number one, we need to read and know well the Bible to be approved by God. Read and know well the Bible to be approved by God. I'm not here to force you to read the Bible. 
I can't guilt you into doing so. I can't compel you to do it. I can only propose to you that if you read and know well the Bible, you will gain God's approval. And with God's approval comes much blessings. Now, why is it important for the church and the congregants of the church to know the scriptures? Look at verse 16 with me. But shun profane and idle babblings, for they will increase to more ungodliness. Now, in contrast to the correct handling of God's word, there is what is described as nonsense words, godless chatter, profane and idle babbling, which leads to more ungodliness, Paul writes. You see, this was Paul's warning to young Timothy, that the people of his church needed to know more about the Bible to suppress the dangers of wrong theology and false teachings, not based on the scriptures, which will infiltrate the church. And once it infiltrates the church, it will spread, it will damage, possibly destroy the church. And to fight against false teaching and wrong theology is for the members of the church to know well the Bible. And that's why I'm appreciative of our church. I'm appreciative of our church with a very full statement of faith. It is detailed. It takes a stance and a position of what we believe the Bible teaches us regarding key theological issues with lots of biblical support. There are many churches today, the vast majority of churches today, I would say, that don't have a solid statement of faith. They are not grounded on solid theological foundations based on the Word of God for the sake of being inclusive, for the sake of wanting to avoid any conflicts. But they will find themselves in a very precarious situation where it becomes a free-for-all. You know, when I return back to the U.S., I enjoy the privilege of speaking in many types of churches, but my heart breaks when I go back to see what's happening in the churches of North America, in the U.S. and in Canada. Or after a generation has disregarded the proper teaching and the learning of God's word for the sake of cultural acceptance is now shown itself in a result of churches that are dying throughout North America. It shows itself in a generation that is simply biblically illiterate. Here when I tell you, please open to a passage, I believe that the vast majority of you know where to find it in the Bible. When I go to churches in America and I ask them to open up their Bibles to a specific passage, most of them just look at me with a very blank stare. They have no idea where the books of the Bible are found and in what order. It is a church culture that allows wrong theology to thrive, false teaching to gain a foothold. It's happening throughout America because they are not grounded in the Word of God. When I speak at churches, people come up to me after church and they are still amazed that I preach from the Bible verse by verse. I wonder what they are listening to if they are not listening to the Bible being taught verse by verse. You see, our Christian belief and practices must be based on something. And if we move away from the Word of God, then false teachings and wrong theology will work its way in. And that's why in church history, there's something called the Protestant Reformation, where the church had become so corrupt 
and the practices of the church had moved so far away from what was clearly taught in Scripture that it had to be reformed. You see, if you study church history, you'll find out that people place tradition, meaning how it's always been done, to a higher standard than the Word of God. And that corrupted the church. That did not hold church pastors and church authority leaders to account. And that's why in the Reformation with people like John Calvin and Zwingli and Martin Luther, they brought it back to the Scriptures. And one of the key tenets of the Reformation is sola scriptura, only in the Scriptures. This is not different. Throughout church history, men and women have always looked back to the Scripture when the churches have moved away from it. That's why the Bereans were commended. The Bereans, the Christians in Berea, were commended that when Paul came to teach them, they tested everything that Paul said against what the Word of God said. And that's why we need a generation of Bereans today. Men and women who are grounded in the truth, who can be able to filter out that what they read and what they hear is consistent with the Scripture or is not. I mention this because unless you are reading the Bible with regularity every day, how do you know if what you are reading or hearing is true or not? You have to remember that Satan knows the Bible better than we do. He could probably memorize the Scriptures, but he's also great at manipulating the Scripture to cut out portions of it, to take verses out of context, to leave out important parts of the Bible, to make it say what it doesn't say. And we see that very clearly in the temptation of Jesus, where Satan uses the Bible to try to tempt Jesus, but he manipulates the Scriptures by leaving out key phrases. He cherry-picks, he picks and chooses what he wants to tell Jesus. And how does Jesus rebuke Satan? How does Jesus counteract his temptations? Jesus uses the actual words of Scripture in their full context to fight the evil one. My friends, you and I need to read the Scripture so that we can make sure that if people are telling us certain things, they are not taking verses out of context to manipulate the Bible to make it say what they want to say. It's like when they tell you, before you sign something, read all of the fine prints. And somehow, because we feel as if we trust the person, or we feel because they say it's from the Bible, or parts of it are from verses you are kind of are familiar with, that we trust it. And we get into trouble when we don't read the fine prints of any legal document before we sign it. And we get into trouble when we do not filter what people tell us by not knowing the Scriptures ourselves. Paul gives an example. Look at verse 17. And their message will spread like hanker. Hymenaeus and Philetus are of this sort who have strayed concerning the truth, saying that the resurrection is already passed and they overthrow the faith of some. Paul speaks about a very present situation where two individuals, Hymenaeus and Philetus, were spreading wrong teachings on the resurrection, perhaps advocating for a spiritual resurrection rather than the real bodily resurrection of all believers, which the Bible clearly teaches. 
and the Bible tells us that they were leading many astray. You know, this wrong teaching could have been easily rebutted if they simply read what the Bible taught. Can I encourage you to read the Bible? Here's a second reason why. To prevent the spread of wrong theology and false teaching. Read and know well the Bible to prevent the spread of wrong theology and false teaching. If you love this church and you want to protect the reputation of God in this church community, then you have a responsibility to know the scriptures well so that if anyone decides to bring in wrong theology or false teaching, you can be at the forefront and filter what they say through the scriptural text and tell them, no, I don't believe this is what is taught in the Bible. And I appreciate that about many in our church who have come to the pastoral staff and said, you know what? What I heard doesn't seem right. This seems a little bit off. And it's because they know the scriptures. They study the scriptures. And when something doesn't seem right, they flag it. And that's how we can protect this church from Satan who wants to destroy the church by allowing false teaching to pervade the church so that none will be led astray. Now I've often said that the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ is that he saves us from our sins. That's the news we share to others. Jesus Christ alone died in our place to save us from our sins, to give us eternal life. Now you know that. But the problem is a lot of people add to the gospel because they don't read the Bible. They say, would you accept Jesus Christ as your personal Savior? Because when you do, He promises you a blessed life. When you accept Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, you will be healed from your physical sickness. If you accept Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, then all of your problems will go away. My friends, that is not taught in the Scriptures. That is not promised when you accept Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. And yet if you don't know the Bible, then you perhaps may buy into that thinking. And the danger of that is when you accept Christ and you're still sick. When you accept Christ and your business doesn't do well. When you accept Christ and problems arise, you'll throw up your hands and give up on the faith and say, well, look, what was promised didn't really happen. When in fact, it was never promised to begin with. I see a lot of social media posts, and people are very earnest. But sometimes the reality is these, what we call social media theology, it's really wrong. It doesn't capture the whole picture of what the Bible teaches, and therefore, it stumbles a lot of people. People post things like, if you only believe and have more faith, then all things will work out well. Just have faith. Believe that you'll have a great day, that your problems will go away, and it will. And sometimes Christians share those types of posts, and they are earnest of heart. But the problem is they do a great disservice to men and women who read it. If I were to ask you this morning, does the Bible teach about the importance of faith? 
Your answer hopefully would be yes, or should it be no? Well, you're not sure, are you now, when I ask these questions like this? Is faith important? The answer is, well, no, not really. I propose to you it's really not that important unless you define that faith. Now, you may be shocked, but the Bible does not teach about the importance of faith. No, not really. The Bible teaches about the importance of the object of faith. You see, faith in the wrong thing is utterly useless. And we see that in the story of Elijah. Elijah going up against the prophets of Baal, 400 of them on Mount Carmel. Remember what happened? The prophets of Baal had faith. They had faith in the wrong God. And so they danced around. They cut themselves asking Baal to show himself to take the sacrifice that they have set up. Elijah was a bit snarky, sarcastic. Maybe Baal is sleeping. Call out them. Call out to him with louder voices. He may not be listening to you. And they did. Their faith was in a false god. And that's why nothing happened. While Elijah's faith was in the one true God. And God consumed the sacrifice even though it was doused with gallons of water. You see, faith is important. But if you read the Bible, you will understand it is the object of faith that is most important. Then you say, okay, I, I learned something today. I need to nuance what I say to be correct. It is the object of my faith. And so you go out with this theology that as long as I believe that God can do it, he will do it for me. If I use the name of Jesus, if I pray, in Jesus' name, I claim it, it's mine. In Jesus' name, let that sickness be gone. In Jesus' name, I hope I win the lottery. I don't know whatever you use Jesus' name for. I have faith in the one true God. The object of my faith is correct. Is that enough? The answer is no. Because if you read the scripture, you will find out that it's not only the object of your faith that is important. It is what the object of your faith has promised. If God hasn't promised something, you can't claim it. Because if you do, you will be very disappointed. Does God promise that your life will be trouble-free? The answer is no. Does God promise that you will always be healed from your disease? No. Does God heal? Absolutely. Is God able to do the impossible? Absolutely. But he never promised that you will get what you pray for. What does he promise? He promises peace in our heart amidst troubled times. He promised us that he will never leave us nor forsake us. He promises to be with us. He promises eternal life with him. Those are the promises he has made. That is what you can claim. Let me give you an example if you still don't understand. A few days ago, before I arrived from the U.S. yesterday, a few days ago I talked to my daughter, and uh, I told her, uh, that I was coming home. She told me that she missed me. And uh, I told her, I know it's been a long trip, uh, but when I come back, I will uh, have for you a gift. And of course, suddenly she became very interested. When will you come back? What time? Will I still be awake? You know, uh, kids are happy when their parents come back, but they're happier because their parents are going to bring them something. What if 
and I did tell her I'm going to bring her something. But what if, hypothetically, then the next day she goes to school, and she tells all of her friends that when daddy comes back, he is going to bring for her an American girl doll. It's a very expensive doll. It's about $100, 5,000 pesos. It's one of those uh, things that every little girl likes. And she tells all of her friends that daddy's going to bring her an American girl doll. She's so sure. And when I came home yesterday, when she gave me a hug and I greeted her, she asked me what was my gift. I gave her a keychain. Do you think she'd be upset? Sure she would. And she may even tell me, but dad, you, you promised to give me an American girl doll, to which I would reply, no, I didn't. I promised you a gift, and your gift is this keychain. You have no right to be disappointed with me because you have set an expectation that I have never made for you. Now, unless you think I'm a mean dad, that was only example. I didn't give her a keychain, uh, and I didn't give her an American Girl doll, but she was still happy with it, the gift I gave her. But I hope you see my point. We treat God in a way that we put words into his mouth. But God, you promised us these things. Hang on. Did he? If you know the scriptures, then you would know what he's promised and what he has not promised. My point is this. Unless we are rooted in the scriptures, we may actually be propagating a false theology which will lead ourselves and lead others in this church down a path of discouragement and disappointment with God based on wrong theology and false teaching because we claim promises that are not there. So you and I need to read and know well the Bible to prevent the spread of wrong theology and false teaching. Now look at verse 19 with me. Nevertheless, the solid foundation of God stands, having this seal. The Lord knows those who are His, and let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. Perhaps Timothy was worried that the departure and defection of Hymenaeus and Philetus from the church would cause others in the church to leave as well. And he was unsure about what he should do as the pastor. So Paul writes these words of comfort and encouragement, reminding Timothy that the foundation of the church is in the Lord, and therefore, since the foundation is in the Lord, it is solid. Look at verse 19. Nevertheless, the solid foundation of God stands. Paul reminds Timothy that God knows who are the true believers, and those who really believe in Him will not put up with sin. You know, the point of all this is that the foundation of truth is based on a God who keeps His promises and based on a God who speaks truth. It is not based on the majority will of the opinion of the people. And the point of Paul to Timothy is this. You continue to trust God. Don't worry if the vast majority of the people even leave the church. You stand your ground because the Lord knows those who are His and let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from sin. The Word of God never changes. The head of the church is Jesus. And the instruction for the church to be rock solid in its foundation is to center itself upon the Word of God, which never changes. And that's why you and I are to read the Bible number three. 
Read and know well the Bible. The truth it contains never changes. The truth it contains never changes. If something is always going to change, would you take the effort to memorize it? For example, if your science teacher tells you to memorize the periodical chart, you know what that is with all the chemicals? If your teacher says, would you memorize this chart? Oh, and by the way, I just want you to know that every six months, this chart will change. You'll throw up your hands and say, what a waste of time. Why in the world would I want to memorize a chart that changes every six months? Here we have the Word of God. The Word of God doesn't change because the author of the Scripture is a God who himself does not change. That means that the standards of truth the Bible speaks about will always be the same. Cross culture, cross generation, regardless of gender, ethnicity, or age. And so if you read and know well the Scriptures, it is a useful endeavor knowing that what you learn is for all generation and all ages and all situation. I was in New York, and uh, I happened to meet someone in Queens, uh, in the Queens borough of New York. For those of you who don't know, Queens is the most ethnically diverse urban area in the world. And we met at uh, the Queens Public Library, which is a beautiful building. And as I walked in, I noticed that in the lobby of the Queens Public Library was a very large sign. And here's what that sign read. Queens Public Library. We speak your language, welcome. Wonderful, very inviting. But then there were other words underneath it. It said this, at Queen's Public Library, we speak science fiction in Spanish, fables in finance, HTML and LGBTQ, immigration and imagination. No matter who you are, where you're from, and what you want to do, we speak your language. Now I know what the purpose of this sign is. It's to be a message of inclusion to welcome the very ethnically diverse population that is Queens. And while that sounds very nice, in reality, this is actually very dangerous. If truth changes and adapts to the culture that changes, then it is what we call relative truth, and it is no truth at all. Did you get that? If truth is always changing based on the majority opinion and the culture of that generation or, or an influential individual, then it is no longer truth because it is changeable. Truth is truth, and it never changes. The only thing that is absolutely true comes from a God who never changes. And that's why... When you invest your time in reading the Word of God, it is a worthwhile endeavor because the truth in it never changes. You can stake your life on it. You can stand firm in it. You can stand. Even though the pressures of the world are upon you, you can be assured that the truth spoken of in the Scripture will never be proved wrong. Verse 20 and 21. But in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honor and some for dishonor. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from the latter, he will be a vessel for honor, 
sanctified, and useful for the master, prepared for every good work. Here in verses 20 and 21, Paul uses a metaphor to help Timothy understand in a very important concept. He said, in the houses of those days, there were different containers made up of different materials. Some, like precious metals, like gold and silver. Others, more regular items like wood and clay. But regardless of how that container is made, what's more important is the purpose to which the container serves. Some for good purposes, like protecting something. Some not so good, like hiding something that's not theirs. What Paul was trying to say to Timothy is that he needed to be used by God with a very clear purpose. And therefore, he needed to distance himself away from these false teachers so that he can be sanctified, set apart, a vessel for honor, useful, prepared for every good work. Now, how does that work applicationally in our life today? It is the same warning to distance ourselves from sin so that the purpose of our lives will be such that we are set apart, useful for the master, prepared for every good work. You see, number four, for why we need to know the scripture and know it well, is that it will prepare us for life. Read and know well the Bible, it will prepare you for life. So many people feel unprepared for the challenges of life. And here the Bible is given to us as an instruction manual, a guidebook for daily living. When you read it, you prepare yourself for how to handle challenges in life. The Word of God prepares you to deal with difficult people, to people who stab you in the back, to people who disappoint you. This book gives you the preparation for your own self-examination for how you can improve. You know, if you encounter a life problem at school or in the workplace or in your family, we often turn to a book. If uh, you have financial problems, you uh, get a book from a financial guru. Uh, if you have problems in investing, you get a book about investing. Uh, if you have a problem in your love life, you get a book written by a counselor or psychologist or psychiatrist who is an expert, supposedly, in the area of love, right? So if you've got a problem in life, why don't we go to the giver of life who created us, who knows mankind better than man themselves? It is in this book where you will be able to find joy amidst troubles. It is in this book where you will be able to find happiness and satisfaction when you have everything in the world and what the world has to offer and yet you still feel unsatisfied. It is this book, the living Word of God, that will prepare you for life. My travels took me to the northeast of the U.S. and it's winter and... Uh, I experienced two Arctic cold fronts. And I don't know if you know anything about driving in the cold weather, uh, but with sub-zero temperature, often the air in your tire becomes affected. And so the cold front came through, uh, and when I started up my car, the low tire pressure warning light came on. And I knew that it was dangerous to drive, with low tire pressure, especially driving 140, 150 kilometers per hour uh, between Connecticut and New York. And so I needed to put air into my tires. Now, what would you do? 
Would you simply say, well, you know, this indicator light says I need to put air, so I think I'm just going to go to a gas station, put air. And if I push on the tire, if it feels hard, that's good enough. If you know anything about cars, you will know that that's very dangerous. You need to make sure that your tire is not overinflated because if it's overinflated, it may burst. You cannot also drive with an underinflated car. It may also burst your tire. And so I need to know two things. I need to know what the PSI for this tire is in cold weather. That's pounds per square inch. I need to know what was the optimal manufacturer recommendation for tire pressure in cold weather. And I need to, to know when I fill it up with air, what the current pressure was to adjust to it. It was a hassle. You've got to understand that the weather was negative six degrees. And it's not like here in the Philippines where it's full service. You do everything there yourself. It was a rental car. And so I had to do the research to find out what was the optimum PSI for the tires in my car in cold weather. And uh, after much research, calling my brother who had a similar car, I found out it was 36. And so I went to the first gas station, drove up to the uh, air hose, and I checked and I realized that the measuring tool to measure my tire pressure was broken. You've got to understand it's negative six degrees. I'm out there in the bitter cold trying to make sure that my tire is well inflated. I said, well, this won't work. And so I drove and I went to a second gas station. And guess what? The measuring device was also broken. I kid you not, I went to a third gas station and the measuring device was broken also. It is negative six degrees. Every time you walk out there, it is bone chilling cold. It's miserable. It's raining. I don't want to be out there. In that frustration, I could have easily said, you know what? I'll just fill this tire with air and if it feels hard enough, whatever. But I realized if I didn't get this right, my life was at stake as I was driving on this highway and I was driving with passengers. So I had to go to a store to buy a tire pressure gauge and then go back to one of these gas stations, fill it up and having to keep adjusting to make sure that I got it to the perfect 36 PSI for cold weather. It was a hassle for sure. But you know what? I realized that if I didn't put in the effort to know how to inflate my tires properly, I was putting my life at risk. And I was putting at risk the lives of others who were with me. The Bible plays the same role. The Bible tells us the standard by which we measure our life. It tells us what holiness looks like. It tells us what God is pleased with. It also serves a second purpose. It serves as the measuring gauge where every day we can take our lives and match it to see if we are matching with the standard that God has set. And so the problem is if you only come on a Sunday morning and that's the only time you open up the Word of God, you're driving the rest of your life from Monday to Saturday at your own peril. Because you're not checking your life against the standard that God has set. The standard doesn't change. The optimum way you live your life is by living out the principles of Scripture. 
And if you want to live your life in an optimum way, you should be cross-referencing how you live your life every day with what the standards are. Either that or memorize it. But we're not a culture that memorizes it. And so we must read it. Read and know well the Bible. It will prepare you for life. Look at verse 22 to 26. Flee also youthful lust, but pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart, but avoid foolish and ignorant disputes, knowing that they generate strife. And a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient, in humility, correcting those who are in opposition, if God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth and that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. Now I wish we had time to really unpack these verses one by one. There's so much to unpack. But here what you have is the older and more mature Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, giving some very practical and godly advice to young Timothy in how he should live. There is here an admonition to pursue righteousness, an admonition to pursue love and peace, to avoid petty fights, to be patient, to treat gently those who are wrong so that they may perhaps come to know the Lord. If you take these verses and and read them every day, they are a month's worth, even more, a year's worth of character improvement points for how you can improve your life. You see, it is a misnomer. It is a lie of Satan that people today believe that the Bible is not practical. Sometimes we have this notion that the Bible can't speak to us. It's only for those who graduate from seminary. No. The Bible is practical for today. It is our guide for daily living. And that's the fifth compelling reason I hope you will read and know well the Bible, number five. It is a practical guide for daily living. And the emphasis is on practical. Just read those verses, 22 to 26. See how practical it is. Pursue righteousness. Pursue love. Pursue peace. Can you practice those? Absolutely. You don't need a degree to understand what the Bible says. I was preaching at a church in Texas. After the service, someone waited in line to come and talk to me. It was an older, distinguished-looking woman, and uh, she wanted simply to thank me for the message I had preached that morning because it spoke to her. She never thought that the Bible would address an issue that she was going through, that she was struggling with. She was surprised that the Bible was so practical. I asked, uh, may I know what situation you speak of? She said, I'm an elected government official, And I've been struggling these past few months with suppliers who take me and her fellow officials on the board to very fancy dinners with the hopes of securing a government contract. She said, yes, there are policies in place, but I felt very uncomfortable with this. And I don't know whether to decline these lavish dinners or not because it felt like they were trying to buy my vote. But now what you have shared from the scripture, God has used to speak into my heart. I never knew that the Bible could speak about this subject in such, with such clarity. I know what to do. 
My friends, if we only take time to read the Bible every day in a systematic, logical way, God will speak to you through these words. It is practical. It is a guide for your daily living. We run around as if chickens without a head, stress, frantic, bitter, angry, confused. Why? Because we do not look to the guide that God has given to us to help us in our daily walk. Now you may ask, why is this a spiritual discipline? And why does it remind us that we are not first? My friends, when you read the Bible every day, when you seek a higher authority in the Word of God, it is an acknowledgement that you and I do not have everything working for us. It is an acknowledgement that we don't know everything. It is an acknowledgement that we are seeking counsel. When we consult the Word of God, it reminds us every day that we are not first. It humbles us. People don't read the Bible because they feel they don't need it. And therefore, in the pride of their life, they feel they've got it all together. But when we read the Word of God, it is a daily acknowledgement that there is someone else who knows best what our life needs. And it's not me and my own desires. Read the instructions that God has given us in our life so that we can have a fruitful life. I end with a story. I was able to fly through Dallas on a transit and uh, stopped by my brother's house for the day. It happened to be the birthday of one of my nephews. Uh, and so I was invited to his very simple birthday party. Before I arrived at the house, I swung by the toy store to buy my nephew uh, a gift. Uh, and I bought him a, a Hot Wheel speed track. Uh, I know. Uh, him and his brothers love cars, and they could uh, race their Hot Wheel cars around this little speed track. And so after a simple birthday party, uh, my nephew came to me and uh, wanted to play with his Hot Wheel car set with his three brothers and uh, asked if uh, I could build a track for him. Uh, I said, you need to ask your father. That's his job. I was lazy. My brother was in the other room. And so I said, hey, Sam. Your son needs to have this toy built. Uh, I'm going to send him over with the box and with the instructions to build this track. He told me, because we banter a lot as brothers, he said, I'm an engineer. It's a kid's toy. It looks easy. I don't need the instructions. You know where this is going. I said, no, you better read the instructions or else you will break this toy. He said, no, try me. I don't need it. it. It's simple. Come on. It's building a Hot Wheel track. They just all kind of snap together. And so I sent uh, his son with his toy to his dad in the other room. And it took longer than usual. I know something was off. And I shouted again from the other room, hey, Sam, read the instructions to put it together or else you're going to break it. He said, I can figure it out. I said, it seems like you're having trouble. Will you just read it or are you going to break it? And then I added, and if you break it, I'm not going to buy your son another one. So he says, okay, send over the instructions. And I sent, another, uh, I sent uh, the instructions with one of his other boys. 
then I hear him exclaim in the other room after I know he had read it, oh, that's how it goes. And somehow my instructions to him in banter stuck with me. Read the instructions or else you will break it. Read the instructions or else you will break it. I thought to myself, that's a wise instruction for me. And that's wise instruction for all of us. We don't humble ourselves, acknowledging we don't know it all. And we don't read the Bible with a desire to understand and live it out. It will lead to the ruin of our life. Read the instructions that God has given you or else your life will be broken. Your life will be a mess. That is a word to the wise. Read the instruction so that your life will not be broken. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. It is a reminder even for me in the business of my life and all that I struggle with that I also need to read your word with regularity and with a desire for life change. May this church not only be known as a church that teaches the word of God, but more importantly, may this church be known as a church where the men and women of it read the Bible for themselves and are able to rightly ably handle the Word of God. I pray that this church, so grounded in the Word of God, would be able to prevent false teaching and wrong theology from creeping in. I pray that because of the men and women of this church who are grounded in the truth of the Word of God, will be able to stand firm amidst the cultural tide that has destroyed many churches. I pray that as you look down from above and you look at this church, you will approve of this church because the men and women of this church look to the practical guidebook for the purpose of how they are to live their life. I pray that the words of life from the Bible will be that which richly indwells each person here because they have read it. In Jesus' name we pray.